Hello, and welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. On today's episode, Oren, Nicole, and Penny Maria talk about two shows they saw on Broadway and two shows they saw off-Broadway. A small note, we had some technical difficulties and could only use one microphone, so our usual crosstalk is relegated to the background of the audio. Enjoy the show. This is Nicole. I'm a freelance critic and journalist who writes for The Stage in London and other places. This is Penny Maria Jackson, arts administrator extraordinaire. Also, I review on To See or Not To See with my co-host Emily Hawkins. This is Oren Squire. I am a playwright, and I review a New York Theater Review, which apparently might not exist anymore. So I will say I am <laughs> dapping my own rep and saying, hey, I'm here as a freelance theater reviewer. New York Times, get at me. And before we begin, thank you to Ben, who's helping pull this all together on this rainy day. He's screwing it up. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Um, so we're going to start with a show on Broadway, an epic show on Broadway, The Inheritance, parts one and two. Um, I get to introduce this because I saw it in London and now it is here in America. Um, it's a little unusual because it is written by an American playwright, Matthew Lopez, um, and then it premiered at the Young Vic in London and then transferred to the West End, won a bunch of awards, and then has now come to Broadway um, Directed by Stephen Daldry, designed by Bob Crowley. Uh, it plays on Broadway through March 1st. And it has had a v- much less uh, happy welcome here in New York than it did in London. It was hailed the greatest play since Angels in America or something. Um, and it came here and everyone's been sort of like, huh? Why? Uh, which is, I think, kind of unusual to have such a major critical kind of misalignment between, you know, I mean, obviously, like, tastes vary and whatnot, but usually there's some general consensus. Um, but it is a two-part play that is uh, about a younger generation of gay men who sort of look and realize they don't have the mentorship of an earlier generation because that generation was um, decimated by the AIDS epidemic. And so the play sort of using Howard's End, the novel, um, and the character of Ian Forrester kind of tries to bridge that generational gap to talk about the suffering of a sort of group of young millennials or older mid 30-something millennials and um, some 50-something older men who lived through the epidemic. Yes, I saw the play last Wednesday, uh, the matinee for part one and the evening show for part two. I found the play to be wildly entertaining in places, also pedantic, preachy, and ultimately dishonest. Uh, thoroughly dishonest through and through in part one and part two. The difference is, for some reason in part one, I was fine with the dishonesty. And I could accept it, and I saw it sort of flying over my head as it was happening, and I I was still enjoying myself, and then they go off into their soapbox speeches, and I kind of twiddle my thumbs and wait for that to end, and enjoying the fabulousness of uh, some great dialogue. In part two, I don't know whether it was what I ate or the meal or just the problems got louder, as Nicole said, and bigger and bolder. But from the start of part two, every bone in my body was like, no. And a lot of my friends were like, what what happened to the play? Because 
we accepted the problems. We accepted that the people of color were literally on the sidelines and had no character arc or plot or purpose being there. They were just there as cheerleaders for the white main characters. But for some reason in part two, that became even more egregious and insulting. I accepted the coincidental meetings uh, that are usually a sign of hacky writing, where people just happen to meet uh, in the middle of nowhere exactly when the author needs them to. And then that accelerates in parts two when it happens, I think I counted four times when it happened, where people just happen to meet the exact person they needed to meet at the exact time they need to meet it. And I can accept the blessed status of all these people who end up in the ideal situation who never really have any struggle all the struggles in the past and everything gets quickly resolved through some miraculous deus ex machina of uh, gayness where the lead character breaks up with their boyfriend and then immediately starts dating a billionaire as is prone to happen uh, and one of the characters wants to be a hit writer and then he becomes a hit writer on his first his first play goes to Broadway as as is prone to happen as we're all familiar with and every single character has these sort of blessed weird occurrences that don't increase the drama but deflate it because they don't have obstacles they don't have struggle everything turns out all right in the end and it's trying to tell us it, it puts a hat on this by saying well Howard's End ended positively because E.M. Forrester wanted it to be or sorry uh, Maurice, which I'm mispronouncing, ended positively because he needed that for a gay drama. And I already knew, like, so this is going to end positive, even though it's dishonest, because he thinks we need that. But we, what we really need in the 21st century is an honest play, not a happy-go-lucky Hallmark card, but an honest play about HIV and the generation that has passed, as well as the current generation, which is a lot of people of color that are being ignored. Danye Loves 1 and 2 is addressing that. And I feel like this was a just dishonest whitewashing of history and hiding behind E.M. Forrester and, and British literature uh, as prestige as a prestige sort of cover from Matthew Lopez. Yes, I agree. <laughs> um, it's funny, though, because I'm thinking about the sort of dishonesty you're focusing on because the play is so fixated on suffering and on what these characters have suffered. And yet the choice to center it around essentially a middle class white gay man who's I guess works in social justice question mark like there there are a lot of sort of vagaries and and non-specific details to all of these characters which I think I wonder if that uh sort of genericism in the UK didn't bother people as much as when it shows up in New York and you're like these are gay New Yorkers and everyone's like I don't even recognize that person there's nothing specific there um but to center it around this you know his, whose struggle is he's losing his grandmother's rent controlled apartment I mean, you know, cry us all a river for that suffering. Um, and, you know, he's looking for love. But like that, that doesn't quite feel like the equivalent of a generation of men who watched all of their friends die. And I do think there are serious issues facing, you know, and I, you know, I, lose, I use the phrase in sort of quotes, the gay community today, that this play isn't addressing, that this play chooses not to sort of focus on or center on. And... 
I get using the Howard's End as your sort of literary overlay, which, you know, there are some interesting moments of intersection there, which I really, really kind of liked. And then I feel like in the second time seeing it again, the disconnects between the 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 places where the play has to um, leave the Forster model creates a lot of disingenuousness and and problems and you know the issues of sort of the class issues that Forrester is dealing and don't get played out well here um they are very bald and uh um, in just again non-specific in ways where you're like this this is your idea of a poor kid and what his storyline is and it just it all feels so underwritten for yet a seven-hour play. And underwritten for a play that has been in development for three or four years and has had countless workshops and productions and the West End and Old Vic and has come here with all this praise. I, I just, yes, as a person of color, as a gay person of color, I can sit through a hundred gay white plays. Two years ago, it was just all there was. Steve and then the play at Lincoln Center, just gay white men talking about themselves. And I could sort of see that world and see how it's very balkanized and it's mostly or almost exclusively white men. I can accept that. Uh, what I can't accept is you dressing that world up by using people of color as uh, a fake out. Like, oh yeah, they're here, but they're not gonna say anything. Uh, and ultimately, as Matthew Lopez, I'm presuming, is a person of color, uh, it, it's baffling that he would do that and that no one would call him out. It's baffling that in 2019, we have a play that is, when it comes to politics and race, even more regressive than Angels in America written 20 years ago, where at least Belize was interesting. At least he had interesting arguments to say these people are just talking in bumper sticker slogans about general LGBT issues we all agree on. And they're really debating amongst themselves. I was never inspired, intrigued, or triggered by any of the debates that happen on stage. These were just like people uh, spouting propaganda. And I guess I also, like one of the issues that I've come to have with the play, I mean, because when I reviewed it out of London, I had some reservations. I had reservations particularly about the sort of historic erasure. I mean, the way in which, I mean, obviously it is focused on gay men. Um, there is one female character who shows up very briefly in a cameo role for reasons. Um, but it, it feels like the the same story of the AIDS epidemic told that we've seen a hundred times before leaving out the same people over and over and over again. And I guess I wouldn't mind that if it wasn't a play then standing up and saying, this is about community and all these characters keep talking about community and what we need to do for the community and throwing out these bumper sticker slogans about, you know, we need to worry about our trans brothers and sisters and we need like all the things you're supposed to say, but no one that the play isn't interested in at all. And it just feels bigger and bigger the more you toss that stuff out there and no one picks it up. It's an artistic vo form of NIMBY, not in my backyard. I agree with you. I just don't want to see it. I agree with you in theory about transgender issues and people of color and HIV rates. I just don't really want to see it on stage. And another point when it comes to the sexuality and the showing of sex on stage, which was at first bizarrely chaste, and then it goes all the way over to the other end of the extreme, but in the same, the flip side of the same card, which is an internalized fear of gay sex by gay men. So it goes from being very chaste and reserved to all gay sex leads to bleeding and getting HIV. 
every gay sexual interaction is an orgy where people are ravaged like animals and they bleed at the end and they get a bad diagnosis. And it feels like uh, an after school special written by someone who's like in the closet and trying to stave off their own urges. Matthew Lopez is, of course, not in the closet, and this is not an after-school special looking at how much money I spent. Uh, and so you wonder, why am I watching this, this particular aesthetic, which feels like it's from the 1980s, from an openly gay man who is turning gay sex into just the worst thing ever that leads to trauma and fear and danger and don't have, H, don't have sex because you will get infected or you will get ravaged or both. But the hooker with the heart of gold will turn out all right because he's read Ian Forrester and he has a friend, which is incredible uh, that like you have that trope of the hooker with the heart of gold and all it takes is just a good book and uh, a shoulder to cry on. And you can overcome HIV. I know. I was wondering what, if one of the reasons it was more popular in the UK was because of the Forrester stuff. Like, is it, you know, because it gives so much sort of credence to that. Um, Forrester's a character in it who does, like, interrupt one of the sort of sex scenes because he can't possibly watch that. And is this, you know, it sort of gets called out within the play for his own um, not coming out of the closet, um, which, you know, was sort of, like, highly unfair to the man who, you know, uh, the years in which he lived in. But also, like, one of the things that, made me wonder was also um, the history in the UK of um, Section 28, which was a, a law that was passed in 1988, sort of as a serious reaction to the AIDS crisis, um, where you couldn't promote homosexuality by teaching or through publishing materials. And even the production of like, Angels in America in London, when it happened, you know, there was concern about sort of advertising and how that was going to be presented. Um, and I wonder, and so it is, uh, it was another way which younger generations, sort of Gen X and maybe even some older millennials, would have lived under Section 28 in those years and the shame that sort of came out of that and the way in which that repression was legislated. Um, not that obviously there's not shame in America and all that stuff, but it made me wonder if there was something which is maybe why some audiences are there because I had friends who were both sort of younger and older in the UK, you know, sobbing and, and weeping at this play. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'd really love to understand what that sort of cultural disconnect is. But in fairness, after I've beaten up the body for 20, 30 minutes, I did enjoy the first part <laughs> in places. I did enjoy the ending to part one. And I do think it's worth seeing if you have a free afternoon and you can get a discount ticket. Part one. Uh, it, it still has all the problems. You don't have to see part two. You can just look it up and I'll tell you. If you meet me on the street, I'll tell you what happens in part two. Everyone ends up fine. That's the spoiler alert. They're, all dramatic tension will be dissolved uh, against the you know good intentions and sunny disposition of the playwright. So, uh, But part one, especially the ending, which I'm not going to spoil, was moving. And it's one of the few times on Broadway where I could hear the sniffling and is it went across the audience in waves and the power of seeing a new play on Broadway and seeing that first reaction of people crying uh, was powerful and I will always remember it and I just wish I could, you know, Men in Black erase part two a little bit and just edge out the different sections because uh, I did enjoy elements of part one, even though it's still problematic. And I was like, oh, the people of color, the people of color. And the Latino character is like a stereotype of, 
a spicy gay Latino who shouts out words like flan and so that white people can laugh and uh, just other things. It was highly annoying, uh, but uh, kudos. It's a play on Broadway. It's new. Uh, apparently, it is the new Angels in America. Uh, there's a new hashtag going around Twitter that says, I'm going to tell my kids, dot, dot, dot. And so I'm sure someone is hashtagging, I'm going to tell my kids this is the new Angels in America or, you know, the gay SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm more in favor of the latter. I think we've killed that show. <laughs> Enough of that. <laughs> all right. So you guys saw that without me, and I think it's all right. <laughs> um, okay, so let's take it off Broadway for a show that's a little more real real as far as content goes and is definitely not a fairy tale. Um, so up next, we're going to be discussing for colored girls who have considered suicide, when the rainbow is enough. It was written by Ntozaki Shange and originally was performed at the public theater where it is playing now through December 15th. Um, so the show is 90 minutes, and she manages uh, Intozaki to put in about 20 poems into the show. And this was very, like, genre-bending, groundbreaking at the time. It's a very seminal work. Um, then, as well as today, um, I want to say because a lot of the stories are still true and still relevant for women of color. So that part cannot be changed. This is a part of history, but it's also still a contemporary show. Um, it was directed by Leah C. Gardner and choreography by Camille A. Brown, which is very important, again, because this is a choreo poem. So um, it was a lot of movement throughout stage. We're going to talk about that <laughs> a little bit more. Um, so basically, I'll give you a few themes that were discovered. We follow several different women, about seven here in the show, I believe. But really, it's telling us the, the story of... 70 women, 100 women, multiple black women, um, and they're discovering the blackness limitations that exist because of the color of their skin. They're talking about their first sexual encounters. Um, they even get into date rape um, in this with which in 1970s, you could imagine, was um, a very taboo subject. But at the same time, the women also find power within the, themselves. And one of my favorite lines from this show, um, and probably for any little black girl who grew up with this show, I found God in myself and I loved her fiercely. Um, it's so important and, and very pivotal, life-changing even. Um, they talk about self-care. So here, when you need to just shut it down. And again, in the 70s, I believe this was... Um, a very important topic and today we've kind of flipped I guess as women so we went from just being in the home to kind of trying to do it all so again that's still a very important uh, topic and they also cover uh, cross-sectionality so not only being black but being a black woman um, black Hispanics even which a lot of people don't talk about they just say Latino to cover everything and don't think about um, the ways that community is split up. 
so Intozaki, when this first came out, again, it was so important. And I know this is a show that was replicated time and time again, especially for me growing up in Liberty City. We did a lot of classics like Medea. We did A Raisin in the Sun. But when for color girls, when we got for color girls, looking back now, I'm like, we were too young for that. <laughs> like, this is some serious, heavy material. Um but you know what? At the same time, it was things that was still happening in our community and that still is happening. Um, we talked about multifaceted black and brown women. So, again, this story is is it's telling all of our stories, even though it's only 90 minutes. She managed to, Intozaki squeezes in a lot of content, but all very relevant. I think for me, uh, the standout performer was Sasha Allen, Lady in Blue. Her voice was phenomenal, and I love the way that she communicated, very powerful. Also, which was really remarkable, Lady in Purple. So this role was played by Alexandra Wallace. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Um, and she communicated through sign language and movement. And it was so beautiful. Lady in Purple, if you know this show, she also performs um, the Sachita uh, monologue. And I mean, just telling that story, you could literally see the dust flying up. In, in Natchez and her feet in the ground and the movements and the coins being thrown at her there it like they did a lot with that role and so I, I want to commend the performer but also uh, Camille Brown with that and a lot of times when we talk about inclusivity we only talk about race but in this sh in this particular show that is the whole purpose so how else do we expand expand that inclusive model and I thought this was a really smart and brilliant way to make that happen the costumes, I want to give a shout out to uh, Tony Le Leslie James. Um, so if you guys notice, there were images on the costumes. And I was talking to another colleague, and they said that these images were actually women from their families. So it's kind of tying together the past with the present. They also did this with the set. Um, and you could see... Uh, kind of that retro feel when you walked in. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, this is weird that it's not more contemporary. But again, I think they wanted to perhaps stay true to the original spirit of the show. The pace overall was very energetic, but I kind of struggled with, uh, with some decisions. One for me was the casting of Lady in Red, Jamie Lawson. We were talking earlier about all of these new, talented, young folks from Juilliard. Um, I mean, the actor herself, I think, was young to play this role, even though in real life, uh, I think age-wise it worked, but it's such a heavy character, and she's going through something so traumatic, and I think the role kind of asks a little bit too much of this young performer and my experience with the work. Um, I don't know. Overall, what did you guys think? What stood out? What worked? What didn't? The words will always stand out for this play. Uh, and that is the star of For Colored Girls. Uh, I saw this play in 2002 or 2003 when I first got to New York City. I did not have a lot of money. So I would go to plays done by universities because they were free at the time. Uh, and I went to a Juilliard performance on Super Bowl Sunday of For Colored Girls done by the Juilliard students who had self-directed. 
in a classroom with only black boxes and some chairs. And it was magnetic, it was imaginative, it was passionate, inspired, funny in places. They had found all the ridges and marks and little uh, divots within the language, within the poetry, and brought that out. Uh, That was not in the production I saw at the public theater. Even though the words are still amazing, I found the production to be very lazy uh, and careless. I found the, the idea of having a stage full of beautiful women of color and most of them sitting around a circle waiting for their turn to hold the talking stick, metaphorically, to speak their trauma, and then everyone else just looking adoringly on like the you know first lady or president's wife just looking on as someone speaks with adoration. Uh, I found to be uh, mystifying, especially for a production off-Broadway with a director who I admire. The choreography is fire, but Camille A. Brown is always going to bring fire with everything she does, as well as the, the costume design. Uh, but I found there were these large gaps where you could feel the audience falling asleep, which is inexcusable for a play this powerful. I found there were large gaps where even I was bored out of my mind. Uh, The scene with the plant, which in the Juilliard student production was hilarious because they found the humor and the specificity. Things are not funny when they are general in acting. Things are not dramatic and passionate when they are general in acting. I just wanted, I felt like they could have spent another week around the table exploring the script. Uh, it felt like, you see revival sometimes, and we'll talk about another revival later on, and some revivals feel like theater history class, and they are important to see if you are in theater or if you are curious. Like, I've never seen Death of a Salesman live. I guess I'll go to this production in Poughkeepsie. And like, you know it's probably not gonna be something that's gonna motivate you, but you're like, I wanna check this off my list of important things I need to see. And then there are productions which bring the work alive again. And I found this production to be more like a theater history class. I was glad to see it, and I'm glad that a new generation is getting to experience the power of uh, For Colored Girls and the power of these stories. I wish the production would have been more specific so that people could feel the passion behind the words and not have these long lulls where I was bored. And I had a coworker who was sitting behind me and on Monday he had never seen For Color Girls. He's a white gay boy who had never seen For Color Girls. And on Monday he was sort of tiptoeing around the issue because he knows it's an important work and you're supposed to respect this. But I asked him like, honestly, what did you think? And he's like, I was kind of bored and confused. Like, this is supposed to be a great work and there were just long lulls and it was just like a tragedy list of things that were bad. And when it's done correctly, it doesn't read as a bunch of poems. When it's done correctly, you weave those together with a vision that tells a story that's bigger than the individual collective uh, tales. As is, it, it felt like a bunch of threads on the table. Beautiful threads, colorful ornaments and adornments that I could acknowledge, and I was waiting for someone to weave these things together. And even though Camille A. Brown is probably the hottest working uh, choreographer 
and deservedly so in the industry right now, a choreographer is not a director and a choreographer is not a production design team and that work should have been done by other people. Uh, she does magic like she did in Choir Boy, like she did in the Tony Stone play with the section she's allowed to do, but a choreographer coming in and doing three or four choreographed dance movements doesn't cover for the lack of movement throughout the rest of the non-musical aspects of the play. Yeah, I think I'm one of those people that this is my first opportunity to see the work and to know its history, to know its importance, and to walk in and see that particular production left me a little bit like, oh, is this the kind of problem where you've seen so many of the inheritors of a work that when you go back and see the original afterwards, it feels a little reductionist because you've seen all the places it's gone since then. And so it felt a little sort of, in my head, sort of watered down from what I was expecting. I expected to be kind of blown over and knocked down with what this piece felt like. And I think I walked out like your coworker a little bit underwhelmed by the feelings. Um, I think the design really worked against it walking in and, you know, it's all mirrored walls. There are these large crystals hanging from the ceiling that I thought at some point might, might light up. They didn't. Um, but it had a very sort of disco palace yeah. feel. And it, it puts it in a very specific place in history. But that's also part of the problem where I think I wanted it to bridge the gap. I wanted it to tell me that, like, 1972 is yesterday. And this isn't that far away. And I think it kept leaning into the, like, we are history. And it became more of a museum piece than a, a piece of living vital contemporary theater which is really a bummer but I also actually the one thing that I did take away from it having never seen it or read it was how it addresses um, black women and desire and their sexual being and how little of that we still see and so, if nothing else, it made me think, Jesus, why are we, we need more of this and we need more people to be writing this and more plays about that subject because we, you know, we see a lot of plays about pain, um, but, you know, we would love to see some more about joy and desire. Um, I will also say that um, I, because I grew up um, and performed this work, I think for me, I didn't feel as, as boring, uh, as bored as you may have or other people may have because I was reciting the lines in my head and having flashbacks <laughs> to me. <laughs> Not only connecting with the material, but actually, oh, and in, a, in a little bit, I was like, ooh, maybe this beat should have been here, up on this, like, you know, in my head. So yes, I was, you know, watching the performance, but also in my mind, I had another production going on. I will... <laughs> <laughs> Not to downplay <laughs> this production at all, but just, just, I, and, and perhaps it could have been because it didn't um, take me, uh, pull me in enough is perhaps why I was doing that. But I didn't even think about it. I actually was there on the night um, of Intazaki's birthday, and I really felt her spirit in the place then as well. I did get to meet her um, in person, which was really phenomenal a few years ago uh, before she passed. But I felt her spirit and, and I I forget which monologue or which poem, but one, one piece was really heavy. And so I leaned back and I looked up and then I saw the disco ball. And <laughs> 
And I felt like she was like, girl, you better keep on moving. <laughs> keep on stepping. So I think I, um, especially being a woman of color, you know, growing up in the inner city in Miami, um, I just really um, still took away, like you said, uh, the words, which were the most powerful and will continue to be the most powerful. And yeah, it. I mean, it, I could see how you, um, you thought it may have been a little bit reductive but hopefully that will inspire this next generation maybe they'll be able to pick up something from seeing this restage and write more you know stories that can show women of color in all of their layers um in all of their facets and I, I think that's what we really need especially as more and more people in the arts world is becoming aware of that need so you know hopefully there is room for m more new work to be performed. Nostalgia is powerful. And I had my own nostalgic trip. Unfortunately, I wasn't in it, so I was recalling better acting uh, and more specific acting. <laughs> I was recalling Penny <laughs> and her wonderful version uh, for Colored Girls. Uh, and I happened to meet Ntosaki Shange before she passed away at the Black Cookout at the Park Armory. Uh, that Brandon Jacobs Jenkins was sponsoring with Jocelyn Biel where they invited like black playwrights and she showed up when we took a picture uh, and that August, uh, this past August, I was in the Harlem 48 Hour Festival uh, as a writer and the theme this year was Ntozake Shange and her work and we randomly drew numbers and we got assigned one of her plays that we had to adapt into a 10-minute version contemporary, and mine was for Colored Girls. So literally, the first I was the first person I drew. I got the number. They're like, you are adapting for Colored Girls, and I wrote my own thing knowing the play in mind. So I, it still holds an emotional wallop for me because of the stories and the words. I just wish they would have spent more time uh, finding the details to make it current and less making it like a museum piece in the 1970s. And maybe this will lead to another production somewhere. I hope so, because uh, I heard some stuff about this production, but we could talk about that off, off, off radio about, but this was in August heading into where there were warning signs of giant yellow flags that concerned me and other people. And we happened to be in the Harlem 48 hour festival dedicated to her. So we were talking about it. So uh, theater gossip is real and it informs us. But I also want to say there is a difference between what white critics think of black work and then the black theater community. And a lot of times things, if they're tragic enough and traumatic enough and people scream and cry enough, they will get a New York Times theater critics pick, sort of like, ah, leave me alone here, just get away from me. Uh, and then you have the rumblings of the black theater world and black Twitter, which is like, really? That, that was okay. Uh, and so there's this wonderful and I say that ironically, or interesting divide between sometimes how black work is analyzed by all white, mostly gay male critics uh, in New York City who have a tremendous amount of power. Hi, how's it going? Uh, and black theater actors and production designers and directors and playwrights who know the inside scoop, not only of the production and what's going on, but the history behind the work and the meaning behind it that Jesse Green might not know, 
the true meaning in the heart of what this how important this work is that Ben Brantley might not know. Just thinking like, well, it's important and it's loud and it's tragic and it's black and this is a right I'm supposed to like. So rubber stamp. Yeah, um. yeah. I, I will say um, that is that is also true for, I mean, any person of color who sees the show. It's There's also a fear of saying what you didn't like to a certain degree because then you worry that, you know, if it get, word gets back, they'll say, well, why are we doing this? And the people didn't even like it. We're not going to, we're going to do fewer black shows. So, um, I mean, that's something to consider as well. But, you know, overall, um, I'm glad that the public did bring this back. Um, I wish it had happened while she was here. Um, but I, I'm glad that the show had its reprieve. And I'm so happy that more people can say they saw this version or even heard this version if they didn't like the production overall compared to the Tyler Perry movie, which I refuse uh. to see. <laughs> which I <laughs> Which I refuse to see, and anytime someone brings that up to me, <laughs> let me tell you, because I heard, I actually um, watched some videos with Nsuzaki commenting on that, and how that went down, okay, and she was not having it, and I stand by her, because it was her work, okay. <laughs> that was a running joke in my play. <laughs> because it was about three black actresses who played it in college and they made a blood oath to never see the Tyler Perry version until someone broke it. And it was like a betrayal, like, you actually watched it? They're like, I was curious about how bad could it be? I just wanted to know. So because I talked to the actors who were in this 48-hour festival and we all immediately brought up the Tyler Perry version. And just quickly to close up, I would say that I know Ntozaki did not like the fact that he added this woman in white who was sort of like a God figure because I think on her um, version, it's about, again, the women finding God within themselves and finding that power to go on. Black black women have, in, like for, for years, for decades, for centuries, um, it's about finding that power to continue and, and to live on and to make your own destiny. So, um, yeah, uh, it wasn't, I, I mean, I enjoyed the experience because of my connection with it, because of the content, and I'm happy uh, that, w that it was produced again, like you said, Camille Brown, like I said, you know, amazing. Um, but yeah, there, were, there was some room for improvement. I'm introducing Fire in the Mirror, playing at Signature Theater until December 15th, uh, Anna DeVere Smith's classic uh, that she initially performed in 1992 is receiving its revival 27 years later at Signature, uh, directed by Sahim Ali, and there's a new twist, she's not in the play. So uh, usually in her form of verbatim theater, she interviews people and then she performs all the roles, and the joy in watching uh, Fire in the Mirror or her other work is that you get to see her both work on the playwright end and on the acting and embodying these characters. But in this case, we are fortunate because we have an amazing actor in Michael Benjamin Smith, uh, who's embodying all these characters and uh, production uh, directed by Sahim Ali. And it's based upon the 1991 incident uh, following the deaths of a black American boy and a young Orthodox Jewish scholar in the summer of 1991. The underlying tensions in Crown Heights erupted into a civil outbreak. 
So among the Hasidic Orthodox Jewish uh, community and the black community that sort of was living together in a state of low level hostility. So this brought all of that out when a uh, young Orthodox uh, driver ran over a black kid uh, accidentally. Uh, the black neighbors beat up this uh, driver and then the first people on the scene for rescue was the Orthodox Jewish Ambulance Service. Now, if you live in Brooklyn or Los Angeles, you know that Orthodox Jewish uh, community has a separate police force and ambulance service that are just for their community. So when they arrived, they treated the uh, driver who was fine and allegedly they did not treat the black kid who was run over and who later on ended up dying and then a week or two later amidst the civil unrest a bunch of black teens stabbed a uh, Australian Orthodox Jewish man who was simply walking down the street uh, and had no part in the initial uh, scandal and no part in the initial crime that happened and this caused another outbreak, and this was while Mayor Dinkins was in office, the first black mayor, and so he was also caught between these two difficult positions. And it's a work where she interviewed 50 members of the Jewish and black community, it won tons of prizes, Drama Desk Awards, and it revolutionized documentary theater. I like this version, despite the lapse in the middle. So everything I just said about inheritance, uh, just ignore that. I like this version uh, because it's verbatim theater. It operates according to different rules, as opposed to The Inheritance, which operates as a standard drama, or For Colored Girls, which operates as a choreo poem. Uh, verbatim theater, I turn off the plot in my head a little bit, and then I focus on the words and how they create the characters and how they have these characters come to life. And I thought that there is still power in this piece uh, 27 years later, even though it sags in the middle a bit. And even though I wanted it to come around and sort of link together better, uh, but maybe that's more of the plot contrivances I thirst for in a traditional play. I still found uh, the characterization and the stories compelling. I still am thinking about some of them uh, weeks later. Uh, I know some of my friends did not like it for the same reasons I brought up, the fact that it doesn't quite link together, that it sags in the middle, that it just seems to be a bunch of a shotgun, a uh, bunch of interviews that are uh, done, and that in this case, maybe Anna DeVere Smith's work is better when she does it and not when other people try to take on that role. I am not saying that. I'm saying this was an argument that was posed to me and it made me think for a second because Michael Benjamin Washington, I think he is amazing, but someone said it loses its power, not only with time, but with the fact that the author's intention of the work is to be performed by her and only her. And when it's not, it, it sort of becomes undone a bit. So I will leave that question open to people. I do not take a position on that. I could understand that person's point of view, but I still overall enjoyed it despite the sagging. Did it sag like a heavy load or did it implode? <laughs> yes, like Langston Hughes for those of you who don't know. Um, so um, 
I actually was very excited when I heard that this was being staged again and intrigued when I found out that she was not doing it. Um, but I don't know. I, I enjoyed his performance. I enjoyed certain characters that I thought he really delivered on, like Al Sharpton I thought was great, uh, Farrah Khan I thought was really great and kind of got at me a little bit emotionally um, when he was talking about the, the history of, or the differences between black people and Jewish people and how um, black people have lost so much more in contrast. Like, it's not an oppression Olympics, of course, but black people have not been able to build back up to the place where they were given the fact that we were ripped from our history, those of us who were brought to this side of the world. Um, so I thought he delivered that very beautifully. I thought the transitions were really great, not only his performance-wise and how quickly he was able to kind of go from character to character and put on different props, but the way that they had the stage arranged and the projections as well, I thought were very clean. It didn't take away from his performances. It kept you focused on the content that he was delivering. Um, I think that, uh, or I mean, mm, the the Guyanese part, which is probably one of the mo more powerful monologues at the end, kind of got me a little bit accent wise. <laughs> My family is, you know, from the Caribbean. And of course, inevitably, um, one of my uncles married a Guyanese woman. And I was like, this is not the right accent. So I think that kind of pulled me out of it just a little bit. But I mean, to be able to do what Anna did and to take on all of those roles, all of those accents, I think it's a big ask. And and, you know, they had to, I went to a, a talk at Signature, um, and uh, Sahim was talking about all the ways that they were uh, auditioning folks to kind of find the right person. And I understand that it's a really big ask. And I thought that Benjamin came close, but definitely it was not the same. I've seen Anna perform, and I mean, it's like, it's phenomenal what she's able to do. But I think her work can be passed on um, to other generations and this was just the beginning I think she may continue to do this perhaps and I, I think you know like we were saying with Free Color Girls the work is so important it's it's still uh viable it's it's a story that still needs to be told um but it wasn't the same for me or it wasn't as powerful as when she perform yeah no I think for me I I felt like I had missed the boat on seeing her perform and so I thought this uh signature doing a season of her works and you know whether it was her or not I was like oh great this is an opportunity to kind of like catch up with with her work and I feel like I still kind of just missed the boat because I didn't get to see her and I wasn't sure if that was going to make a big difference and for me it it did um, I think it's interesting to sort of talking about the the narrative and that kind of plot drive or in that you're sort of mentioning I'm there was a piece of me too that also kind of wanted an update like a little like can we check in on this community and hear about where these two communities are together today I know one of my writers from Exian um, Ayanna Prescott did a talk back with a local rabbi who both are from the neighborhood and I really wish I could have gone and heard the two of them talk um, just as you know younger people sort of speaking to what's going on now today in crown heights in a sort of a very different community than it was 30 years ago um 
30 at 20 how many years i can't do math <laughs> yeah and i think i think watching michael uh benjamin washington perform you know it was one of those things where you're like i'm getting to see some really fine technical acting work but i couldn't get it out of my head that that wasn't what i was watching that i was still watching an actor perform and not a lived-in experience not recreating a combination that anna devere smith had with someone but that someone was performing these roles um and the accent work was funny because there was a point where he performs as a reverend and i was like is he irish oh no he's caribbean <laughs> but there was definitely a moment where the actor was like it's not clear to me <laughs> what, what kind of where, where this reverend is from um and you know and I do think it it's I don't know the production I didn't love as much probably as others um because it uh with the with the documentary images and the sort of tinkling piano and each of the transitions it felt like it was really sort of playing into kind of film documentary tropes in a way which the piece again sort of stops being about living people about you know real life experiences and becomes about the form um which again, I think maybe I just kept craving that immediacy of um, what it would have been like in 1992 to have heard this, um, you know, sort of while it was sort of still all in everybody's mind and, you know, present. Um, so it, it did for me sort of, I feel like I missed it a little bit. I do, I, I agree with you. I would have loved an update. I think that might be interesting to see each time it's performed if someone could go out into the community and get a few interviews and, and incorporate that into the show. I think that's a lovely idea and I think you should be compensated for that and give me a little kickback. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, but I want to raise a question, Orin, like you have. My question is whether or not women make better multi-performer, multi-character performers just because women, I guess, and not like trying to like, I guess, fit into stereotypes, but because we're more so quote unquote emotional or raised or raised to have children and to kind of anticipate the needs of others in a certain way. I wonder if that says anything because you think about another great um, performer who's almost as great as Anna and that's Sarah Jones. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's just something that's floating in my head. I think the short answer is yes. Uh, Dale Orlando Smith, Sarah Jones, uh, Anna DeVere Smith, the people who are at the top of the game tend to be women and women of color because they are more familiar with code switching. Not only code switching among race and class, but among gender, and they do it more fluidly. I think the limitations of not only whiteness, but uh, heterosexuality as well as masculinity confines a lot of male actors. <clears throat> and so it's a lot more difficult for that transition to happen. I also think, uh, going out into the streets and interviewing people now would have been interesting. When I've done verbatim theater uh, with Tectonics Company a long time ago, uh, I was working on a project where I had to interview people and then act in a workshop of the piece. There's a vast difference between doing the interviews yourself and then performing in the piece yourself versus actors who were just given the transcripts and performed who didn't do the interviews. Well, the actors, if they weren't there to watch the way that the person spoke, to watch the facial expressions, to see what happened in between those audible pauses, I think that does make a difference. 
there were so many beautiful moments when you are actually interviewing the person that you pick up on that aren't in the transcripts. So I feel like maybe going out, Sahim and uh, Michael going out and re-interviewing people would have uh, invigorated that muscle that is the ineffable, almost, you can't really put a finger on it, but it's the magic of theater. When someone has it, when the spirit is within them, when they have the, as they say in the church, the anointing. Uh, there's a difference, exactly, amen. There's a difference between a preacher who was saying the words with passion loudly and you sort of nod along and a preacher who has been anoint, who has the anointing and they're speaking from their chest, they're speaking from their soul. Uh, and how can you tell the difference? You just can. It's hard to describe it. Uh, why was the things in the part one of the inheritance okay and not in part two? You just can tell it when you're in the theater and unlike movies and unlike TV, you have to be in the room to feel the magic and or to not feel it in, in this case. And so I think that's a great idea. So all in all, it was a very important work again, um, an essential uh, revival, I think. And it reminds us that we're more alike than different. Um, so I think it's a very, very important work. Um, so our last show to talk about is Tina, the Tina Turner musical about Tina Turner, the musical. Um, it's another import from London uh, coming to Broadway, uh, directed by Phyllida Lloyd. Uh, written, the book is written by Katori Hall along with Frank Ketelar and Keys Prince. <laughs> I, I don't know. Sorry, Mr. Kettelar. <laughs> Tickets are available through September 2020. And um, honestly, I mean, the reason to... Like, I am not a jukebox musical person. I'm always wondering why there are jukebox musicals. Um, you know why. <laughs> you know why. <laughs> Everybody needs to get paid. Um, and Middle America understands it and comes here just to see that. Yes. <laughs> I I generally just find them narratively tiresome. No matter like all of the four, I haven't I've yet to encounter one where I was like, yes, yes, I get it. Still waiting for the Air Supply musical to come. And when my the musical of my life comes, you'll have that moment. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, but honestly, the reason to see Tina, the Tina Turner musical, is Adrian Warren who plays Ooh. Tina. And I mean, talk about if we're talking about the spirit. Something comes over her body, and there is no separation between her inspiration and her performance. And it is really, you know, uh, something to see. And is that enough to pay Broadway prices? Probably not. But if you love the music and you're willing, you know, you're willing, you're already halfway there, then Adrian Warren really, you know, sort of seals the deal. Um, but I would also give a massive shout out to Sky Dakota Turner, who plays young uh, Tina Turner um, uh, anime. Um, she is, I don't know how old she is, 10, 11 years old, a little kid. Um, She's so good. I would just sit and watch musicals. Any musical she wants to perform, I will go. I will go. I will show up. Just pick one. I will be there. Um, she, you know, there. there's a moment in the, in the show where she's in church. She's young. She can't sit still. She's just so overcome with wanting to sing. And this little girl is just like, every little muscle is moving. And you can just, like, feel the fact that she can't 
stop. She needs to sing. She needs to get this out. And, you know, it's quite a performance from a really, really young performer, which was really exciting to see. Um, I don't know. I mean, otherwise, there's lots of projections, you know, because that's what we're doing now. The set is dumb. There's a point at which a giant fish tank like comes up out of the floor and it's just like fish stickers <laughs> on a piece of plexiglass. Like they didn't even they didn't even like fake that. They couldn't project fish. I mean, that's the one time they don't use a projection. <laughs> Stickers of fish. Just fucking stickers of fish. And I'm sitting there and and it's a scene. I mean, Ike Turner is beating Tina Turner. It's a terrible scene and should not be the focus. And I'm just sitting there being like, why is Finding Nemo and Dory just stickers on a wall? I don't get this. So design matters. And I feel it's really important. And every element of design is important because you don't want to distract your audience with your dumbness. So I'm going to go in reverse order. (laughs) Design. Okay. I don't know. Why her new manager had the same costume on for 20 years? <laughs> Did no one notice that? Or was it just me? I was like, um, not, not even for the curtain bows. Did he change his costume? So that was just very interesting, to say the least. I don't know. Maybe this production was running out of money. They're charging so much to recoup. Dakota was amazing. She had such great energy and such a strong voice. I don't know. I think she could use a little bit more um, acting training, though. She was breaking the fourth wall, but not, I I think because she was like, I'm so good. Are people enjoying it? (laughs) Like, I felt like she was looking like, did you hear that note? (laughs) That was amazing, right? (laughs) I was like, babies, come on, stay with it. But I mean, she was really great. And if you guys saw the uh, Macy's Day Parade, they did a, a performance entire cast so that little girl that's who we're talking about um I mean yes I agree with you Adrian she's amazing she's around my age but to see her like she's the character who was able to give you that 15 year old and then also give you that I don't think she quite made it to 80 but happy belated birthday to Tina because she did just turn 80 years old um, but we get to see, you know, follow Tina throughout her life. And Adrian left her all on that stage. I mean, I was exhausted after watching her. And then she kept going like it was nothing. Um, I did see the show on a night um, where her sister um, actually fell. Mars Rucker um, kind of stepped in the stage trap door. And they actually had to pause the show. It was so dramatic. I've never seen anything like that. Um, and I and, and it took a while, I think, also, not just for me, but also for the other audience members to realize what was happening because um, the tech folks came out, and I was like, oh, they're backstage, and Tina's going to have to go on in place of her, her sister and this. Like, you know, I thought, and then I was like, oh, no, this is the real show. <laughs> this lady is really hurt. She was hauled away in an ambulance, and the swing had to go in. Um, so, But the swing stepped up, and, I mean, I don't know. I could be an understudy. I could not be a swing. How do you learn all of these roles? This girl got with it like it was like nothing happened, and I, I thought that was really great. The swing who went in, I believe, was Leandra Ellis Gaston. Um, I love Tori Hall, but I don't know. I didn't even realize. I forgot she'd even written the book. Um I don't know. I, I mean, Our Lady of Chabejo is really like my favorite work of hers, and I've seen a lot of her work. Um, but I think 
Um, I don't know. I, I, I kind of lost that a little bit. You have something to say about that? I wonder if they had to hire additional writers because something was lacking in the London production. Uh, because I feel like this has been in development for a few years. It went up in London, and then there was a long pause. And speaking of Our Lady of Chibejo, uh and the machinations of musical writing, a lot of the stuff, especially with jukebox musicals, is how you orchestrate scenes and how they flow into each other. Uh, and scenes have a certain energy of small cast, big cast, big number, small number, medium number, quiet moment. These things you have to orchestrate through. And one of the things I always remember about Lady of Chibejo is that it was scene after scene of two people, which orchestration-wise is flat. And it was like five scenes in a row where someone walks in a room was like, can I speak to you for a moment? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And this happened like twice, and I was like, that's unusual to have back-to-back scenes. As a writer, but also as a dramaturg, you're like, that's unusual to have back-to-back quiet, like, can I talk to you? And this happened like three or four more scenes in a row where I was like, oh, we're just gonna have all the quiet scenes now. Uh, and as someone who's doing, doing my own thing, I know that orchestration of scenes is important in musicals. And so you need the small, the big, the medium, the quiet, the romance, the I want. And maybe that person was brought in for more the technical aspect of gluing these parts together. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that um, that insider knowledge that I was not privy to. Do you remember that about Lady Chabejo? There was a lot of like two-person scenes, which is weird because you have a cast of like 20 people and you're like not using 90% of your cast. It's like having a Ferrari, but only using like two cylinders or using only the cylinders of like a moped when you have a Lamborghini. I remember that, but it built to the scenes where you had all of the girls on stage. So I think flow-wise, I accepted that as opposed to the mountaintop. We don't want to turn this into a review of Katori Hall. We're only two people. <laughs> two people were in that cast, right? That show, which is. There's more flow between. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> okay, but back to Tina. I mean, Adrian is amazing. The costumes were, were great, as you would expect them to be um, in a show like this. Um, and Mark Thompson designed the set and costumes. I don't know about the set, but I mean, the costumes surely did sparkle. And I mean, even the character shoes were done to the T and I wanted to snatch a pair for myself. They were, they were glamorous. Um, but overall the energy of the show is nonstop. And, um, the music was so like emphatic. I mean, even the, the folks in the audience and it was mostly white folks, but they actually were moving and rocking and I'm used to being just me and a, two other people of color rocking out but they were all here for the music like they were loving it so that was a little um different but it made it um an enjoyable communal aspect in that sense um and again when you can see a woman like tina turner um you know this woman come from nothing really create her own life you know lose it all and start over again to really define herself um it, it's quite quite an amazing feat so, yeah, I mean, come on for these stories of these women doing it all. I just want to say I love Katori Hall, by the way. I don't, not to criticize, and I like Lady Chabeho, just to make that clear. And I'm going to see Tina uh, probably in the next week or two. So, yay, black theater. 
Don't, don't crucify me. Why? No, no, no. Not in the least. In the least bit. She's listed as one of my favorites online, so people can see that in writing. You know, I was just saying, you know, I was like, oh, you know, the I guess the way the book flows and, and what you were saying, it's just a different style altogether as opposed to her straight plays. Um, but, you know, if you're looking for a good jukebox musical um, that tells a story many of us know already, um, I think... Sorry, was that that was that rude? <laughs> well, if people have seen the movie, people like followed her life. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know that there were any new revelations for for me in this. Nicole, what did you think? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it it really is full of surprises. It is it is structured a little non linearly. I mean, a tiny bit, um, which I guess is sort of helpful. Actually, I didn't know much about her Buddhism. Sorry, because I'm an no, idiot. I didn't see the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so that's a big thing. Um, but yeah, so I think I think for most people, I think they will know where it is. I think it also, you know, darker chapters get sort of. I mean, I, I think her son passed away recently, and that's yeah. not addressed. Um, so you know, I mean, it's. I think it's what people expect. It certainly is loud and shiny and big and all the things it's supposed to be. Um, and I was just surprised by how much of the music I was like, oh, no, I know that like it's, for somebody who doesn't listen to a lot of music, it actually was really it was accessible for me. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so if you guys want to see it um, again, like you said, it's playing for another year, apparently. And <laughs> they've already they've already opened it for another year um but the tickets uh you can enter the digital lottery for 45 dollars. but be prepared it is almost three hours um but again the music is amazing the costumes are amazing and adrian is phenomenal so um now i'll leave you with this left to good job down in the city Okay, I was her understudy, but, you know, I had to go do, you know, marketing work, you know, for this little theater called the Apollo. So I had to step down from the role, but you all know what that's like. <laughs> go ahead. Well, I was just saying, pumped a lot of chain down in New Orleans, but I never lost a good saddle today till I hit your ride on the riverboat queen. Okay, Big down. wheels keep on turning. We don't get cut. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and we talked about birthdays a lot. Happy belated birthday to Nicole too! Yes, uh, just a couple shows to keep an eye out for. Um, just because I happen to see the show that's coming to St. Anne's Warehouse, uh, December fourth through nineteenth, "Keep" by Daniel Kitson. I'm a big Kitsonite. Um, I went and saw it in at the Studio Theater in D.C. Um, before Thanksgiving, so um, I got a little preview for what you guys should expect to see. And although it didn't get great reviews in the U.K., I actually really, really enjoyed it. And I haven't liked a lot of his recent shows, so this is actually a huge endorsement. <laughs> Clouded in a lot of negativity. Um, but it is about sort of about a guy, Daniel Kitson, um, cataloging all the things in his house. And it is about memory and consequences and the things you remember and the things you forget and past versions of yourself sort of wrapped up in objects, um, uncovering pieces of yourself you don't even remember being true to you. Um, 
it's a very unusual piece and as somebody who just moved houses in the last year after living 18 years in the same place um it was it, it sort of really resonated personally for me. Um, I also wanted to mention Greater Clements at Lincoln Center Theater, Samuel D. Hunter's new play that's playing through January 19th. Um, I'm a huge Samuel D. Hunter fan, so I don't know. It's another Idaho play. Very excited. Um, I will just quickly give a wrap up, I guess, or a little shout out to two shows um, that I've seen recently. Um, so today I saw Measure for Measure at the Public Theater uh, by the mobile unit, and it was a people of color performance um, or experience, audience experience. The entire cast is women of color. Um, I don't know. Public is on a trend where they're really trying to get me to donate to them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's what's happening. <laughs> um, but I really just love the experience of being in the theater, um, having that call back with the audience being so into it so happy to to connect with this material um and i mean you're talking about making shakespeare fresh i think it was even a little fresher than the normal shakespeare in the park which tries to you know judge it up a little bit um so i really enjoyed that and then also uh you mentioned, Oren, uh, Danye loves uh, one and two. I think, again, it's a very important work, and it asks, uh, and asks us as humans, not only as audience members, to think about the value of life. I, I think the subject matter is, again, very essential. Um, I think the show could use a little, a little bit of a, a tweaking, a little bit of work, but um, overall, it was uh, very powerful. And at the end, like uh, the audience members just didn't know what to do with themselves. Um, so I encourage you to see that show if you can. I second one and two. Uh, I saw it a few weeks ago. I encourage people to get out there and see it. We complain about uh, lack of representation in theater. So when we have the opportunity, I think it's great in New York City that this play is getting done. And usually the AIDS crisis on stage is revolving around white gay men, and that's great, and that's wonderful, and it's important. Uh, but this is about people of color and gay black men, and one in two will be infected with uh, HIV, according to the CDC, roughly 43%. I also want to include Lucas Nate's The Thin Place. I'm just curious... I'm curious, Nicole's making that face. <clears throat> I, I just wanna see, you know? <laughs> I just wanna get a peek, I wanna get a taste. See, see if uh, he can follow up uh, plays that I liked, even though a lot of my friends didn't, uh, Hillary and Bill or whatever that Hillary Clinton play was, Hillary Clinton, uh, and uh, Dollhouse Part Two. I love Dollhouse. So maybe he can follow it up because uh, I, w I wanna see more good stuff there. Uh, ben and has comments. No, no comments. Uh, <laughs> and Tracy lets the minutes, I feel like, is coming to Broadway at the beginning of this year, uh, maybe, or March. Yeah, same thing. Uh, that I'm looking forward to. And there was something by Young G. Lee, but that also is probably in the spring. Oh, right. They're bringing back we're gonna die they're bringing back i'm gonna see that and ryan haddad is at joe's pub uh once a week 
uh, for the next few weeks, and I want to check that out. This might be a little too far in the future, but I'll say it anyway because I think it's super important and or not super important, but really, really good. Um, part of Under the Radar, uh, Lucy McCormick is a British performance artist, is coming and doing a show called Triple Threat, where she essentially performs the New Testament um, in the most profane way humanly possible um that's all i will say but it is really incredible the dramaturgy i mean it is so dramaturgically sound for what she's doing um it is kind of a like i I don't even know i don't even know i can't even explain just just trust me it's only playing for a couple nights just buy a ticket i mean if you have a high tolerance for performance art shenanigans who doesn't love shenanigans remember Tune in to Maximu for all the shenanigan details on Broadway and off. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, we'll see you soon. We have our end of the year podcast coming up. Ben will give you a little more about that in the wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximu. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can find them all on the store at Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. A programming note, in order to have as many of our regular contributors on this year's Best and Worst Theater of 2019 two-parter, we're pushing its release back to early January. You'll probably hear a little bit from us before then, and afterwards we'll resume programming as usual. It's been a delight to be back this year, and we're looking forward to sharing 2020 with you too. See you again soon.